Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. This is Joey Klein. You're listening to Tech Talk. Happy Friday morning, everyone. Okay, now we've got Eric Bush, Demand Driven Technologies. How are you doing today, my friend? Great, Joey. How about you? Good. Um, so, Eric, let's start out by talking about the technology. Give people a little bit of an executive summary of how it works. So we provide uh, cloud-based uh, supply chain software for clients that want to improve their inventory and materials management as well as their production scheduling. And it's uh, an area that is dramatically underserved, actually. A lot of uh, investors thought this was an area that had seen a lot of attention. There wasn't any real problems to solve, things like that. And in truth, the logic that the big ERP companies that provide the technology that the major corporations around the world run on, uh, the logic was developed back in the 70s and never really changed, and the world's changed since then. So the big differentiator in what we offer is demand-driven approaches. When the whole idea here is that we're going to pace your materials, your production scheduling, to what's actually happening in the market, not your forecast. Forecasts are inevitably inaccurate, and they've gotten less and less accurate over time, primarily because of product proliferation. One of our big clients is Michelin. They're implementing 70 plants with our software around the world. And if you look at automotive tire sales in the U.S. over the last... 30 years or thereabouts. In the late 70s, there were 10 tire sizes in the U.S. that drove 90% of the sales. Now, the top 10 sizes are probably a third of the business, and there's 700 sizes overall available. You just look on the road anymore. You see so many different vehicles with different mm -hmm. tires. It's become a very, very challenging issue for them. And the old logic depends on an accurate forecast. So we're saying, hey, the best uh, signal you can get for demand is the actual order the customer gives you instead of your estimate of what they're going to give you. And we pace materials and scheduling of your production against that signal directly. And, you know, when we first met, I was somewhat shocked that something like this doesn't exist because I think most of us who have been in any sort of revenue uh, customer-facing position, you understand how the forecast goes, right? Really, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, your superior comes and says, I'd like you to put together, you know, a forecast of sales for the next year. And you go off of, you know, certainly some realistic, uh, you know, indications, right? But a lot of it is, well, I think this deal might close and we're having a good conversation. And, you know, Frankly, it's an arbitrary number. Absolutely. And it's just shocking to me that that is how business is done in the year 2019. Well, in one way, it makes sense. It's the most logical thing to do. You know, Gretzky said, I skate to where I think the puck's going to go. So, you know, why don't we figure out what our customers are going to buy? And they have these resources now in these companies called demand planners, which to me is a bit of an oxymoron. They're going to actually plan what the customers <laughs> are going to buy for them? No, they're going to buy what they're yeah. going to buy, right? And I think the uh, the reality is that it all made so much sense back when software was first introduced into manufacturing. If you know what you need to produce, then we can figure out how many things you got to buy and what you need to build and all that stuff, and it all works out. The problem is that that forecast, that critical assumption in that software doesn't work. And we've proven that time and time again. So by shifting to a demand-driven principle, Companies are seeing much better order fill rates, meaning they can ship every line of the order on time in full. And as well, they see reductions of inventory because they get away from the bias in the forecast that's out there. If I'm a material planner, whether I say it or not, I'm buying double to stay out of trouble. 
because the consequence of stocking out is so much more severe than carrying too much inventory. In fact, if you go to most CFOs, they know what their inventory was last year. They know where it is now, but they don't know really what it should be. Mm -hmm. And so there's this tendency to just overcompensate. And you'll go out into plants and you'll see FedEx boxes that were obviously expedited that have dust on them and are unopened. Why did that happen? Because somebody thought, oh, my God, we got to go do this right away. Then, in fact, we didn't really need it. And that variation in, in the forecast and the actual way demand comes through becomes a real problem. And that's something that wasn't considered in that logic as well. And, and of course, so right right now in the evolution of your growth, we're very much talking about the manufacturing industry. Do you have any way of calculating what that extra inventory is costing? Absolutely. Every So I share a lot of Chris's you know, values in a, in a sense of we built this company to create value for our clients. You know, when I started the company, I looked around my former job. I was a VP of operations for the consulting business at IBM. And we w- would see time after time these big ERP software implementations go through with the client, chew up a ton of resource, spend a ton of money, and then the needle never moved. Recognizing that and knowing that the methodology and the, the solution that we have actually works the commitment we had was that we have to be everything big software isn't. We have to be rapid time to value. The client knows what they're going to get out of it up front. There's a clear business case. So we actually simulate for each client in advance what the use of our solution will do for them. And they get a very clear understanding of the level of inventory reduction, the improvements in service, and factors such as that. And that really drives a much better relationship from the beginning. We want them you know, to get value from this, because if we do that, we'll be very distinct from our competitors, and we'll have a good business as a result. So I want to talk more about your background, because, um, you know, on this show, we have a lot of first-time entrepreneurs um, in, and and most of them are maybe right out of college. They might be like Chris, where they started in their dorm room, they've been, you know, it's taken off for years. You were at IBM for a lot of your career. Yes. And you are almost an accidental entrepreneur. Um, and so I'm, I, I, well, <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it, through my IBM career, there were days where I had ideas and I really wanted to go, but <laughs> with the wife and the kids and the bills, never really had the right situation to do that. After I retired, this opportunity kind of fell in my lap where a colleague I had worked with years before had developed some software, wanted to get out of that business, but Hey, maybe you can do something with it. Kind of a story. And knowing that it created value knowing that the same ideas had worked for us inside IBM. We had used similar concepts uh, in my role there. I thought, what the heck? Let's go see if we can make this go. You know, we went out trying to raise money. The investors that we talked to said, you know, you got a lot of evangelizing to do because this is a sticky market to sell into. You're dealing with the vital organs of a manufacturing company. They're not just going to change this on a whim. It's mm-hmm. not going MySpace to Facebook. You know, it's <laughs> not that kind of a change that you're going to go through. But by demonstrating to clients that they're getting better value. Kind of the word of mouth that Chris was talking about started to work for us. And the ideas got out into the market. It's very much like an open source movement where people are collaborating on these concepts. And that is then creating kind of a blue ocean opportunity for us to pursue. Uh, and that's really kind of the, the legacy of it all. But no, I did not start in my dorm room at Miami University of Ohio back in the <laughs> 70s and plot my way into this thing. <laughs> well, you, you you almost have a, a Godfather-type situation. You tried to get out, and they pulled you back yeah, in. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, so look, you, you talk about the evangelizing. And so look, clearly, you know, you, you talked about how many plants you're in for Michelin. You guys are having a lot of success with the product. But because this has been done a certain way for so long, I'm curious about the process to get there, right? Absolutely. And th- people will say, well, wait a minute, I can't pace to actual demand because I can't respond fast enough. I have suppliers, and I got lead times, and we got stuff coming from Asia. So how's that going to work? And it's all based on the logic. Our principle is that you're, we're going to hold stock for you of the right materials that will allow you to do this. And if you can get them across that bridge, then the doors open up and the windows open up, and they start to see tremendous opportunities for improvement. The way we do that is through those simulations. Mm-hmm. We, want, we call it a fact-based selling approach. If there's opportunity for you here, you can make a decision. If we can get clients to at least do the simulation, 70, 80% of the time, we're going to get to a proposal, and most of the time, we're going to win the business there. Mm-hmm. So it's all based on delivering value to them. We've done tons of pilots. You know, Michelin started with five pilots. Those were successful. That led to the commitment to the 70 plants. Um, and so now that people are seeing that this is really working for them in the manner that they were expecting, um, what we're finding is people coming to us. They're already kind of checked in on the opportunity it represents and, and want to know how to get started. So has the has using the forecast been, um, I guess I'm just curious, how this became so entrenched? Is it that there just wasn't a better way to do it? Right. That's it. it just I mean, be- there's there's a concept called lean out there, which is based on true pull. And there's another concept called theory of constraints. So there are ideas out there, but they had never kind of reached the scale of opportunity that this represents because they were missing some pieces. And the people who really created this methodology called demand-driven MRP were the creative ones who fused those two conventions together, the pull concepts of lean and TOC with the conventional planning of MRP. Mm -hmm. And the innovative thoughts that went into that really is what broke through the ice and created the opportunity that we're dealing with. Were were you mainly, when you were at IBM, I'm assuming that you were heavily working in this world? Um, I had a lot of experience with manufacturing and distributors earlier in my career. And then in my operations role, my job was to manage the supply chain of the consulting resources we had globally. So think of 3,000 skill families, you know, Java developers, architects, you name it, all sorts of different resources. We were trying initially to follow forecasts on that. Those were inherently wrong. We ended up with a big distortion of our skills around the time of Y2K, right? That We got to that cliff, that ended, that work was gone. Now, all of a sudden, dot-com is exploding, ERP is exploding. We had to make massive shifts in our resource base, so we developed a skills transition program to move resources from one um, skill family to another. We also wanted to break free of the partner's forecast of what their outlooks were going to be because those were always more optimistic than they were. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do this in a big consulting firm, guess what? You can't hire. If you can't hire, you can't grow. So by realigning the method here, we got tremendous leverage out of it. And it was really that knowledge and having done that for about 10 years that really helped give me the experience to be effective in the role I'm in now. So you saw this issue in a different facet of business, yep. and then years later you were able to turn that into demand-driven technology. Exactly. Okay. Um, I'm curious about how your experience at IBM, I mean, certainly it can be from your actual work, but just at being at a large company, a storied company like IBM, how does that inform the way that you are building uh, and recruiting at demand-driven? Yeah, the good question. Um, 
I, I had a phenomenal career, and I was blessed to have that opportunity, and I got to do some very interesting and cool things, and I learned a lot through that process. Um, I also saw the underbelly and the things that didn't work, right, and that there would be a tendency to major on the minors, and, and measurement by objectives can go too far. So I think the idea of how to build a company and how to grow something, I had a lot of experience with that with what we were doing with our global operations, uh, was very, very beneficial. I think at the same time, there was this reality that we've got to be pragmatic. There's only so much time you have in the day. And even, you know, we've gone from three or four people to now 25 people, and we're going to probably double in size in the next year. That's great that you got all these other resources, but the waves of work to be done continues to come at you, and you have to be good at prioritizing and being very selective about what you put your time into. It's not about doing everything. It's about doing the right things. And we pound this on with our leadership team. We talk about it all the time um, because there's always more work to do than you've got resources to deal with. And I think the, the benefits of knowing what a big company, how process should work, how mm -hmm. companies should be organized, how to run a business, had tremendous experience there. At the same time, you know, learned enough to know that you can't just turn it into IBM, right? That's not the goal here. It's to be pragmatic and selective in what we focus on. Well, how are you finding the right people to do that? Because especially right now at the company at such a young stage, you know, those key hires are really important and people's uh, skills and personalities can have an oversized effect on the direction of the company. Um, it was. This is very interesting for me. Uh, in my IBM career, I literally was flying around the world a lot. I spent two and a half years in London, but for the most part, I was working remotely. You know, dealing with staffs all around the world, working out of my home a lot. And I had 40,000 people on my staff, but they were spread out everywhere. I didn't know anything about Atlanta. I've been here now 19 years. I don't know anything about what goes on inside the perimeter, blah, blah, blah. I started trying to raise money and I started meeting people. And it's amazing the connections that I've been able to develop in the city here. Uh, through Mosley Ventures, Sig Mosley, John Vecchio, um, the support that they've provided, the people that they know, another gentleman on our staff uh, or our, our board and an investor, Mike Parham, phenomenal guy who uh, taught an entrepreneurship class at Emory, still does. He met some folks, some younger guys going through their MBAs, thought, hey, maybe, Eric, you ought to take a look at these. Two of them have hired on with us. So, And then they know people, and they know people, and now you start meeting other investors and other people. And just getting that local connection. This is the first time I really felt like I'm in Atlanta because of what my experience in my career had been. And as Chris was saying, it's a phenomenal area to live. It gets hot in the summer for a guy from Cleveland, Ohio. But <laughs> uh, I think the word of mouth, we have people looking to get into the company now, which is great. you know. And we've found that we're building a reputation. Um, Melissa, who's our director of marketing, has uh, done a great job of getting us more visible on social media. So we're finding that we're becoming more visible in that way, and that, that helps a lot in terms of attracting the right kind of talent. We, we, we dove deep into the, uh, the Atlanta connection when you and I first yeah. met. And uh, I, I love hearing it because, I mean, look, I am an evangelist for this city. I grew up here and, frankly, you know, didn't, didn't think that I would kind of stay and grow and make a career here. And it, it is a fantastic place to be. And so I really want everyone to know that. And, Absolutely. you know, whether you are 
on whether you're right out of college or whether you have had uh, you know a full career, I think that the openness with which, uh, assuming that you show integrity and competence, the openness with which the business community will embrace you is just it's it's frankly stunning for a relatively uh you know mature city right yeah, absolutely it's um i think part of it has to do with the fact and this is my own little diagnosis here um that there are so many transplants in the city that people are very much used to either making friends with people who they didn't you know know from growing up or you know moving here and making new friends and so it just gives uh people maybe a little bit more openness to strangers Absolutely. and hear new things. I had lived in Denver for a couple of years earlier in my life, and it was similar, very transplant-oriented kind of population there and very welcoming and whatnot. I think the embrace that we've gotten from Atlanta, plus you cannot discount in my job the airport. I mean, I can get anywhere in the world, and we have clients all around the world now, tiny little company, we've got clients on six continents. The functionality that that provides a business like ours is you know, immeasurable. I mean, it really helps us so much control spending on travel, but having quick access to wherever our clients are. It's like a pitch for the Metro Atlanta <laughs> Chamber right there. Thank you, Bill Hartsfield. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so we've, we've focused a lot on what you're currently doing in manufacturing, but when I hear about this technology, it seems to me like there's a lot of other applications. Absolutely. We've already got uh, a good bit of, of our client population is in the wholesale distribution space. But what's really exciting is now we're starting to get into retail. And retail is a whole different animal. There's segments of retail that are a good fit for what we do. There's others like high fashion apparel and things like that that don't necessarily fit into the offerings that we provide. Uh, but we've got some very interesting pilots with some global brands, uh, the names that you would all recognize we can't talk about yet, underway, which are very promising and which we expect we'll be able to announce relationships with those clients in the coming uh, coming months. That's very exciting. So manufacturing, retail, just the beginning. I feel like healthcare, too. Healthcare right? is another great spot. We've done some pilots in uh, managing central supplies for hospitals. Um, they're not... They're not really thinking like supply chain people, so there's a lot of opportunity for improvement there. Mm -hmm. And that can free up physical space in their hospital, which another room for beds or another MRI machine that gives them a lot of room for that. And obviously, if we can help free up some working capital, that'll help them uh, you know, put that money to better use in serving patients. Yeah. Okay. So, so just the beginning, and clearly everyone here is going to be hearing big things about demand-driven in the coming months. Um, if they want to find out more now, how do they do that? Sure. Uh, you can find us at demanddriventech.com. Uh, it's a long name, kind of like international business machines. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, demanddriventech.com. Uh, look for us on social media and LinkedIn, things like that. You'll be able to find us. Okay. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks a lot, Joey. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for listening to Tech Talk. 